0: Good morning. morning. Uh, Let's ask for God's help, shall we, as we come to his word together. Our God in heaven, to the praise of your glory, uh, we now sit under your word. And we pray, God of heaven, that you would speak to us now. Please help us, help us to hear what you say. And as we hear what you say, would you help us to believe and to trust you more and more to the praise of your glory. Amen. Uh, I'm told that I ought to get rid of some of my old t-shirts. My wife is the one who tells me this. Um, And one of the t-shirts in particular is one that I have had for 23 years. Uh, I remember buying it. I bought it in TK Maxx. A friend told me, this t-shirt is there. You've got to go and buy it. It's an England Rugby World Cup 1999 supporters t-shirt. Um, it's a wonderful T-shirt. I, I remember I wore it when uh, before Nicky and I were married. I went to visit her in her hometown, went to her home church, and I was wearing this T-shirt. And after the service, a guy came up to me, all seriousness, and said, "Did you play for England?" <laughs> what a moment! It'd be better if it was true, wouldn't it? It'd be better if it was true. I've worn this T-shirt uh, many, many times, um, and you can tell because it is worn. Very worn. It's rotting in the armpits, uh, falling apart, (laughs) easily torn. Um, It probably needs to go. Um, uh, Sooner or later, I think we can all feel like that about ourselves, can't we? Uh, We are worn. We are worn. Sometimes, for those who are trusting Jesus Christ, those who are Christians, our faith can feel like that. Our faith can, can get worn very thin. It can become kind of threadbare and fragile. And and you can tell when that has happened to a person, when their faith has got worn, because it becomes harder to distinguish between the believer and the unbeliever. You can tell when it happens because faith in Christ starts to make no difference to their life, uh, to how the person acts, to what they say, to how they use their time, uh, to how they spend their money, to how they behave, to how they hope, to how they live, and even to how they die. Uh, you can tell when faith is worn thin because it becomes really hard to see. And yet, and this is the challenging twist, uh, and I think a challenging twist for those who have walked long in the faith, uh, what can make it hard to tell is that on the surface we can keep up a pretense. Now, what can make it hard to tell that faith has worn thin is that it's something that begins and happens in the secret place of our heart, in the place where nobody else is looking. So how about you this morning? Uh, Do you know how your heart reacts to the promises of Jesus? Uh, We're coming back to the first book of the Bible. Um, It was four years ago we went through Genesis 1 to 11. Last year we went through Genesis 12 to 17. So today we're in Genesis 18 because that comes next. Uh, Genesis is a book of beginnings. It tells us how in the beginning God made all things. He made everything. It tells us that that there are two orders of being in existence, that there are things that are made and then there is the maker, two orders of being. There are things that are created and there is creator and there's only one in that second category. Uh, only one Creator, the Author of everything. Genesis one and two show the Creator, show His great power, ordering the whole of creation by His word. And and when he, God had made the world, He looked at the world and He made His assessment. And everything He saw, He said, "It is very good." And, and as God had set up the world as He wanted it to be, it says, "On the seventh day He rested." He sat on his throne to rule his world. The kingdom of heaven was on earth and under his rule there was blessing. God blessed the seventh day and under his rule he created uh, people and a place, to, a, p- a place for people to work and to enjoy life together with God. Now, the universe, Genesis is telling us, the universe is made by God and it shows us what he's like. Uh, last week in a school um, in a year eight class, uh, the children were, to- were, asked, were told this. They, they were told this in their class. They were told, Christians believe God made the world. So Christians believe that we can learn a bit about what God is like as we look at what he has made. Okay? Then they were shown this picture. A picture of somewhere in space. Um, and then they were asked, now, given what Christians believe... If someone made that, what does it say about them? And a boy put up his hand and he said this. It says that God makes fantasy true. That's a great answer, isn't it? Isn't that a brilliant answer? The world is beyond description, beautiful beyond description, vast beyond comprehension, and it declares the glory of God. That's how God made the world. Then Genesis 3 tells us, The poisonous lie was planted. People started to doubt God's word. They doubted God's goodness and they thought they had to make a way for themselves. They had to make their own way in the world. They turned away from God. Sin entered and the beautiful creation was fractured. Genesis 4 to 11 plot that downward spiral. People doing awful things in the stink of death everywhere. The Bible tells us people are all made in the image of God and all people are fallen. It tells us we are all capable of of beautiful, amazing things and terrible and awful things at the same time. Which is the world we know so well, isn't it? In fact, we know the world so well we can forget so easily that death is not part of the design. We can forget that the world is not just Hurtling in chaos from one thing to the next until eventually oblivion. Now, the God who made the world is too good to let his purposes fail. So right from the of the fall, God made a gracious promise of restoration. Now that promise rode under the surface in Genesis 4 to 11. But in Genesis 12, it burst out. In Genesis 12, God calls a man named Abram. And he promises blessing, he promises a place, a name, a people and a family. And the promises that God makes to Abraham in Genesis 12 are promises to restore the blessing lost in the fall. They are are promises that are built upon grace. They They are unmerited, they are unasked for, they are undeserved. And they come, these promises come from the goodness of God reaching down to rescue a broken world. God says to Abraham, through your family, through your family, a blessing is going to be unleashed on the world like like you could never imagine. And it's all going to come through someone born in your family, this great blessing. Abraham trusted the word of the Lord. But, but Abraham and his wife Sarah had no children. They had a promise. But the promise depended on their family, but they had no family. And the years turned into decades and Abraham wrestled with this Genesis 15 he pours out his anguish in Genesis 15 he says sovereign Lord what can you give me since I remain childless what of this great promise when we can't see any of it happening and the Lord responds to him and he basically says you have to trust me on this and Abraham does, and, and the Lord then shows Abraham, he shows Abraham how he is so deeply and personally committed to bring about the promises that God himself would put his own divine life on the line in order for it to happen. In order to, to, to rescue Abraham from the punishment and curse of his sin, and to bring him and his family and his descendants and the whole world into the promise to come. But Abraham and Sarai had no children. Genesis 16, they try to take matters into their own hands. That goes terribly wrong. And the years drag on and on and on. Genesis 17, the word of the Lord comes again to Abraham. The Lord seals his promises with a sign of circumcision. Genesis 17 is the, the longest kind of speaking of God in the whole book of Genesis. And, and the message of God to Abraham in Genesis 17, he says, I am God and I want you so that I can do so much good to you. And Abraham says again, yeah, but I'm old, and we have no children. And so God changes their names to Abraham and to Sarah, and he says, I am God Almighty, you will have a son. And you'll call him Laughter, you'll call him Isaac. Then we get to Genesis 18, which is where we are this morning. And it begins, if you have a Bible, follow with me, verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre. Genesis 18 and 19 uh, cover a 24-hour period. In Genesis 18 and 19, as we go through the, the history of Genesis, the brakes get slammed on and we, we, we slow down as we to, we're told these events over this short period, events that, re, that they reveal to us great truths about our world and about ourselves, and most importantly about the, who God is and how we relate to him. It begins with the Lord appearing to Abraham. Now, we know that because it tells us, the narrator tells us, Abraham doesn't know it straight away. In verse 2, Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. The Lord appeared, Abraham saw three men. Now, as it goes on, we come to realize these three men are not men. This is a divine appearing. And, And as the events unfold, it will seem to be, by the time we get to the kind of like further on, uh, it will seem to be there are two angels and a third. And in all of it, the Lord speaks and he comes near. But, but it's quite mysterious. And, and as we work through, we watch the reality slowly dawn upon Abraham. It's, it's worth just noting that, that, that point, I think, that God and his messengers move about in, in very everyday encounters. I think probably Hebrews 13 in the New Testament has Genesis 18 in mind when it says this. It says, Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. See, in Genesis 18, we've got Abraham taking a nap in the heat of the day. Don't know how many of us take a nap in the afternoon. I often have an eight-minute power nap on my study floor. I've only been caught once, but now you all know. Um, uh, he's having a nap and he looks up and he sees these three men and Hebrews 13 is saying that could be any of us we encounter people strangers all the time how should we treat them treat them like you would an angel knocking at your door that's what Abraham does verse 2 Abraham looked up and he saw and when he saw he has this double take he saw and he saw and he leaps to his feet and he runs and he honors them Everything that Abraham does says it is his privilege to host these strangers. He takes three sears of flour. Your footnote will tell you that that's 16 kilos, I think. That's enough bread to make nearly 100 loaves of bread. That's a lot of bread for three people, isn't it? Everything he does says this is a great honour for him to host these strangers. He's eager to provide far more than they ever need. And they eat, they feast and then verse 9, that the curtain gets pulled back a little bit in verse 9. They say, where is your wife, Sarah? And I think that they're saying this because they want Sarah to hear what comes next. In Genesis 17, the Lord speaks to Abraham. The Lord says to Abraham, Sarah will have a son, you'll call him Isaac. That's a conversation between the Lord and Abraham. Did, did Abraham go and tell Sarah that? Was it too painful for her to hear it? We don't know. Did he go and tell her and she dismissed it? We don't know. But now she is going to hear the word of the Lord for herself. In verse 10, the mysterious visitor says, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent which was behind him. The promise meets Sarah's heart. What happens in Sarah when she hears the word from the Lord? When the the promise gets to her heart, what's the reaction? She laughs, laughs, that's right. She laughs. Now, Now, first of all, note that this is a good promise. This is a good promise that is given. Back in Genesis 16, we hear... We hear Sarai blaming God for her lack of children and concocting a plan to have a surrogate. She, she does this, it says, so she can build a family for herself. goes very badly then. But what it does, it shows this longing of Sarai. She wants to build her own family. And that's a very natural desire. But in that time and in that culture, this was a deeply defining desire. See, for everything that Sarah had, and she was a rich woman, everything she had in that culture, she had nothing if she didn't have children. And and all the way through her life, she had carried that childlessness as a burden of shame. And she didn't deal with it very well. So when the Lord says, this time next year, Sarah will have a son, that's a good promise for her. It's also a good promise because this is part of the great promise. Uh, That The great promise is that through this family will come the one who brings blessing to the whole world. See, if we step back from Genesis 18 and look at the whole picture of the Bible, that we see that the great promise is that Jesus Christ will come and he will save us from our sins and he will bring us on his merits into the new creation. Now, without a son for Sarah, that promise is dead in the water. So when the word of God says to Sarah, this time next year you will have a son, this is a promise, it's a promise loaded with an eternity of goodness for her, and for the world, and for all the generations yet to be born, for us here today, for the whole multinational people of God in the age to come. It is a good promise that is given to Sarah. But it's also an impossible promise. Verse 11 makes that clear, doesn't it? Abraham and Sarah were already old. And Sarah was past the age of childbearing. It wasn't possible for Abraham and Sarah to have children. Not possible on on the account of their age and on the account that Sarah had never been able to have children. Two facts that made it impossible. If I were to promise you some bread, I've only got one thing ready. I like to talk about um, bread. Um, if, if I were to promise you some bread, that would be a good promise. It would be a good promise. Uh, take my word for it. If, if you face the facts, it's also a fairly reasonable promise because our house is full of bread. We have a freezer in our house dedicated to bread. We have a lot of bread. So if I promise you bread, it's not only a good promise, it's a fairly reasonable and substantial promise built on a sure foundation. If I were to promise you a... A paradise island on which you could live, that might be a good promise. Might be a good promise. But if you face the facts, well, how on earth can I give you a paradise island? That's nonsense, isn't it? There's pie in the sky. Um, If you face the facts, the good promise of a paradise island is founded on thin air. See, here we have verse 10, a good promise. Verse 11, we have the facts. It is impossible for Sarah to have a son. So how does it meet her heart? Verse 12, Sarah laughed to herself. That's what happens deep within. This is in the place that nobody else sees. It's her secret place. She laughs and it's not a merry chuckle. This is bitter. This is agony. This is the laugh of unbelief. There is a deep doubt that has corroded her soul. Now listen to what she says. It's it's her internal monologue. What does she think? After I am worn out and my Lord is old, she's worn out. That's how the promise meets her. She's stretched thin. She's threadbare like my T-shirt. And the burden that she's carried, that burden of carrying that shame through many, many years, that, that burden of unfulfilled hopes, that lifetime, that long lifetime of disappointment had worn her out. What good is the promise if the promise is impossible? And then she says, will I now have this pleasure? Uh, This pleasure seems to be that she would enjoy being in the embrace of her husband. It's it's something more than simply having a child. It's it's deeper than that. And and actually the word here for pleasure is, is a rare word. but, But it looks to be a variant on the word for delight. And the word for delight in Hebrew is the word Eden. Eden. And there's just this glimmer of longing here, isn't there? Maybe she's speaking better than she knew, but she's saying, will there be for me Eden. The one who has lived long in disappointment carried the burden of shame all her life. Will she ever experience Eden? Eden was the place, it says, where, where the man and the woman were naked. They were vulnerable. They were completely known. And there was no shame. Eden was paradise. Eden was the world as it was meant to be. Eden was, was a place where there was no sorrow and no sin and no suffering and no disappointment and no agony and no tears shed. Will there be for me eden sarah this is a laugh of hopelessness she's saying there will never be eden for me i'm too worn out see the good promise is heard by sarah as a cruel promise do you know how your heart reacts to the promises of jesus Now, when we hear the word of God in the Bible, when we hear the word of God, we are met by the same promise that Sarah heard. The the same promise. We hear the promise kind of grown up and filled out in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's something we've seen as we went through Galatians last term. that, That this promise about Abraham and his child is ultimately a promise of Christ. The promise of the one who came into the world to give himself for our sins, to deliver us from this present evil age and to bring us on the basis of his own worth and merit into the glory of the new creation. The promise we hear in the Bible is this, summed up in John three thirty-six: Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath remains on them. Now we all deserve the wrath of God for the sins that we've committed. But the promise is that the wrath of God was put on the Son of God. So that we will never taste it for ourselves. The promise of full and final forgiveness. And, and all of us are decaying, aren't we? But one day we will lie in the ground and decompose. But the promise is that all who believe in the Son will have eternal life. We will be raised into an imperishable existence in the life of the paradise of a new world, in a world where there is no sorrow and no sin and no shame and no suffering and no disappointment and no death, in a place where where not only no tears are shed, but where every tear is wiped away by God himself, whom we will enjoy to be with forever and ever and ever. That's the promise. It was embryonic when Sarah heard it. It is technicolor when we hear it. And it's a good promise. And all of us harbour this aching for Eden. Every person who has ever lived is searching for that peace and that beauty that we were made for. That was lost in the fall. Now, G.K. Chesterton, I think, said, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. think there's truth in that? However crazy and absurd our ways of seeking it, all of us are longing for what we lost drinking from broken fountains. But the promise is that God in Christ will restore everything and so much more. God is planning to do so much good and he's prepared it all for us in Christ and he gives Christ to us in the promise. The promise is a good promise. But don't we have to face the facts? Don't we? No, it's stupid to jump about in the dark, isn't it? Got to look reality in the face. The promise is a good promise, but isn't it impossible? Isn't it? Now, how could we ever think that that could happen? Now, how could we claim to be children of God? Look at us. Sounds nice, doesn't it, to talk about being children of God. How could we say that? Forgiveness? Just fiction? Are we just kidding ourselves? (laughs) And how can we really hope for life beyond death? Isn't that just make-believe? It gives an illusion of comfort. We know we want it to be true. But but we also know that when you're dead, you're dead, aren't you? This life is all that there is. There's no changing that, is there? Is there? When the promise meets Sarah's heart, she laughs in hopelessness. Does that happen in our hearts? The promises of Christ are just too good to be true, so we laugh. Laugh is, is a way of making light of something, isn't it? It's a way of dismissing something. Now maybe we identify with Sarah. She's carried disappointment for so long that the promises have started to sound cruel. Maybe we, we get so battered by life. That to be told again and again, God loves you, God is good, God has a great promise for you. It just starts to sound cruel because your experience in life is so contrary. So we laugh in our hearts. Maybe, maybe it's that faith in Christ is, is, is just like, it's a kind of escapism for you. It's, it's a moment where you can step away from reality and imagine something better. But on Monday morning, you face what is real. And, and when the real things come, faith goes to the side. Because the promises are not directing your heart to gladness and obedience to Christ. That they need to be shelved when you have to deal with real things. And the Lord says why did Sarah laugh verse 13 says she was afraid so she lied and said I did not laugh Now, why did she do that wasn't it because she knew she shouldn't or she felt she shouldn't she, she felt that she shouldn't doubt but she does and, and and so there's just more shame here isn't there? shame in her fear as she tries to cover it up and, and don't we find ourselves thinking the same we think we shouldn't have those thoughts we shouldn't have those doubts. And we certainly wouldn't want anybody else to know, would we? We wouldn't want anybody else to know what really goes on in, in our hearts. We wouldn't want anybody else to know just how messy and muddled our years is, would we? Well, this episode is it's not just about the promise meeting Sarah's heart. More importantly, it's about the Lord meeting Sarah's heart. In 2017, a man um, crashed his plane in Scotland um, because he just plonked it down into a random field. Destroyed the plane completely. He was all right, fortunately. Um, But the reason that he crashed, he was following a sat-nav that told him there was an airstrip and there wasn't an airstrip. There was just a a field. Um, So he crashed. His navigation system was faulty. If your navigation system is faulty, you have a problem. And you need to get it reset. Sarah's heart has a fault in its navigation system. And the Lord meets her in that. And look at what the Lord does. Sarah laughs at the word of God. And and now it's uh, in verse 13. The first time we are told directly the Lord speaks. Uh, These three men are not what they seem. We we knew that from verse 1. But now the Lord said to Abraham. And and as he speaks, there, there are four things that he does. The first one is this. The Lord knows. Sarah is hidden away in a tent with her own private thoughts and the Lord knew all about it. The secret things of the heart are not secret to God. Secondly, the Lord challenges, confronts her unbelief. Why did Sarah laugh? And she denies it, but he's not going to let her wriggle away. Yes, you did laugh. She did laugh. And the Lord loves her too much not to challenge her on it. So he challenges her. And then he redirects her attention. Where is Sarah's attention in all of this? The good promise comes, but she hears it as a cruel promise. Why does she do that? Well, because she's old. Her husband's old. She's worn out. The the promise looks impossible because she looks at everything that she lacks And she looks at her lack, and then she can't imagine how the promise can be true. Now, she faced the facts, doesn't she? Her situation is hopeless. There's no way she's going to conceive and have a baby. No way, humanly speaking, is she? But she's only speaking and thinking humanly. She faces the facts, yes, but she doesn't face all the facts. She doesn't consider the one who makes the promise, and that's what the Lord turns her attention towards in verse 14. See, what does the Lord ask? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? That word hard could be difficult or wonderful. And and I think both are important aspects here. Is there anything beyond the ability of God to do? Can, Can God promise and yet not manage to fulfill? And is there anything beyond the goodness of God to do? Could, God, could, could God's promises be too good to be true, if God promises? The Lord directs Sarah's attention away from her own lack, away from her own insufficiency, and he tells her to consider the one who makes the promise. What is God like? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There are two orders of being in existence. There are the created things. The, the things that have to depend on something else in order to be. And there, then there is the created one. The one who exists because of himself. The one who is so uniquely and different to everything else. He is, He's greater than the greatest imagination. He is most of all. He spoke the universe into existence. Power beyond understanding. He has wisdom and strength and greatness. Infinite in its extent. He's not describable. God makes fantasy true. Who is the Lord? He's the sovereign creator of everything. Now, when I was an an engineer, we were taught that when you have a difficult problem, you have to go back to the first principles and build up from there. I think the same is true for faith, isn't it? When we're faced with the impossibility of the promises of God in Christ, we go back to first principles. Where are first principles? In the beginning, God. That's our starting point, isn't it? Who are we dealing with? But who makes the promises? It's God Almighty. It's what the prophet Jeremiah said. He said, Sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Now Sarah focuses on, on how impossible it is for her to do what is promised. And she misses the point entirely. And the Lord says, don't look at yourself. Look at me. Nothing is too difficult for me. Nothing is too wonderful for me. And I promised it. So trust me. In the New Testament, in Romans chapter 4, Paul writes about how Abraham wrestled with believing the promises. And he writes that Abraham believed in God, the one who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Abraham considered God the creator who brings the universe into existence from nothing, and then he reasons, since God has that power, he says this, against all hope. Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God has power to do what he had promised. Abraham faced the facts. He was too old. That's a fact. Sarah was too old. That's a fact. Sarah couldn't have children. That's a fact. He faced all the facts. He didn't pretend the promise wasn't impossible. He didn't change the promise to make it seem more manageable. He did try that on a few occasions, but not this time. Abraham faced the facts, but he faced all the facts. The one who promised is the one who makes existence in the first place. There is nothing too difficult for the creator, nothing too wonderful for the one who makes fantasy come true. Abraham was persuaded God would do what he said because he's God. And so in Genesis 18, the Lord meets Sarah's doubting heart and he redirects her away from her own lack. Towards his complete sufficiency, his absolute power. And then, fourthly, he repeats the promise. Sarah laughs, and, and the Lord could have said, well, therefore, I'm done with you. If you're just going to laugh at my promises, uh, I'll move on. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that with her. He doesn't do that with us. And when our faith is worn thin and stretched, he doesn't say, I've had enough with that. I'm done with you. I'm going to move on. No, he says, word, word, the same promise. I will return at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. He will do what he is committed to do because that's what God is like. God takes up hopelessness. Uh, Long after any good has been expected, he takes it up and he he fills it up with joy. He he takes up disappointment and he crushes it in his hands. the next to deathness of their old bodies. He takes up that nothingness and that emptiness and he fills it with life. He takes death and he brings life because he is God Almighty. He is the sovereign Lord and nothing is too difficult for him. So do you know how your heart reacts to the promises of Jesus? I think Sarah does hear what we we probably do all too often. I know I do, maybe you do too. See what she does, she listens to the word of God and then she filters what God is saying through her own inadequacy. You see that? No, no, no we, can, we might be doing that even now, right this morning, as the promise meets our hearts. This word of God that declares that all who believe on the Son have eternal life and our hearts are not jumping for joy and our hearts are not wrapping themselves. And the promise and resting in it and clinging on it. to something flat instead. Deflated. Because deep down, if we're honest, we think the promise is impossible. Too good to be true. Maybe too good to be true for me. Now, even as we hear the word of God, we can reject the word of God because we're thinking about us. And, and we think about how worn out we are. And we dwell on our own disappointments and our hopelessness. And we, do, we are facing the facts here. We're facing the facts that the promises are unreal given our life experience. That the promises seem so unreal given all of our failings. The promises seem so unreal given, well, given me, don't they? Now Sarah hears the word of God and thinks about herself. And she's not thinking about the God who speaks. She faces the facts, but she doesn't face All the facts. And all this happens in the secret place. And she thinks no one else is looking. How about you? And when you hear the promise of the gospel, we can just despise it, can't we? We treat it as as though it's nothing. We treat it like, like the news that there's going to be a rain shower in Paris this afternoon. It's nothing to us, is it? makes no difference. You see, when that happens to us, when we hear the promise of the gospel and we despise it, the Lord knows, doesn't he? We can hide it from one another. Of course we can. We might even be able to hide it from ourselves, but we can't hide it from the Lord. But that's pretty unsettling. Yet it's also liberating. There's no point putting up a front before God. He knows already. Someone once said that what someone is on their own before God, that they are and no more. That's true, isn't it? We can be all kinds of things to other people, but before God, we can only be me. And he knows. And he challenges. Why did you laugh? He challenges because he doesn't want you to stay hopeless. He wants to bring out your struggle so he can deal with it. He wants to bring out your struggle So he can redirect your attention. He wants to ask you, is anything too hard for the Lord? Face the facts, he says. Face all the facts. Look at the Lord who promises. The one who creates life out of death. The one who brings everything out of nothing. Is it impossible for him to fail to do? Well, it's not impossible for him to fail to do anything. Failure is not a word that we can connect with God. You see, theology firms up and and, and directs our faith. And Mark started this service by speaking about the Trinity, that's theology. And we sang a song, our first song was based on, on the Apostles' Creed, which is a summary of theology. We've been singing theology all morning. Whenever we think about God, we are doing theology and it matters. It matters what we know about God because faith can only respond to what we know about God. The better we grapple with who he is and what he's like, the more footholds we find for our faith. Is anything too hard for God is a theological question. And it aims, like all good theology, to grow faith. That's what God's doing here, isn't it? Isn't that what God's doing with Sarah? Growing her faith? It's a long, slow process. God doesn't just zap her back in Genesis 12 with transformation. Sarah's faith is grown through worn-out waiting every year that has passed the promise looked more unlikely and the, the, the promise looked unlikely more unlikely year after year after year until it looked impossible that's where God brought Sarah he brought her to a place where she can have no confidence in herself he brought her to a place where the promises can't be a lucky coincidence now Sarah's faith is grown when she is painfully brought to see that she has to hang everything on God who gives life to the dead She has to hang everything on the God of all creation. She has to come to a point where she confesses with delight that nothing is too difficult for God. Nothing is too wonderful. He will make fantasy true. Might that be the same for us? When we feel like we've been dragged through long seasons of hopelessness and we know perhaps in those seasons we've become hard and bitter. And we know that our faith, well at least how it feels, it feels threadbare and maybe about to break. And that that aching for Eden is just an agony because it feels impossible. But might it be that in all of that, God is growing your faith as you wrestle with doubt, as you wrestle with unbelief. Might it be that God is doing that to bring you to a point where you say, it's impossible. But what if God does the impossible? But what if God could do more than I imagine? What if, what, what if God has got more power than I can conceive of? What, what if God is actually more deeply and enduringly good than I dare to accept? Now what if Christ died and he rose and he reigns and he will return? And as he promised, he will take me to be with him so that I might be with him and see his glory. Now, the Lord repeats the promise, doesn't he? does that for us now how does Sarah's heart react when the promise comes again well, we don't really know and, and then when it comes again well, we, we don't really know but, but God is so gracious he keeps bringing his people back to the promise back to his word he does that for us now when we read the Bible let's look for the promise there are, the promises are many and they're all yes and are men in the Lord Jesus but let 's look for the God who promises. Let's keep asking ourselves against every promise. Is anything too hard for the Lord? As someone said, reading the Bible is about redefining the impossible. Reading the Bible is about redefining the impossible. It's about facing not just the facts, but facing all the facts. So do you know how your heart reacts to the promises of Christ? Spend a moment thinking on that and then we'll pray.